Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Work hard, play hard, and stay single. In our individualistic age, this is the advice we get everywhere we look, says Professor Brad Wilcox from the University of Virginia and all over the world. Marriage rates are declining. But he says the data tells us that living for ourselves or for our jobs doesn't actually give us meaning and happiness. What does is marriage. Brad lays out his argument for matrimony in his new book. It's called Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families and Save Civilization. And Professor Brad Wilcox joins me now. Hi. It's great to be with you here today, Jesse. The book begins with the story of Andrew Tate. Some of our listeners will have heard of him. Uh, He's been called the king of toxic masculinity. He's huge in the online world, particularly with young men. Um, And he calls marriage a trap. So I guess first question is what worries you about his approach to matrimony? Yeah, well, what I've seen with Andrew Tate is a lot of negative messaging around not just marriage, but around really love and relationships between men and women, kind of telling men that they should not invest in love, but they should kind of invest in themselves. They should try to make a lot of money. They should try to get strong and really use uh, almost perhaps abuse the opposite sex, you know, but not open their hearts to uh, to love and marriage. And are women getting the same message? Yeah, I think one of the strange things about kind of looking at a lot of the messaging around marriage today is that both the left and the right are kind of preaching against marriage, but they're targeting different sexes. So as I've just said, Andrew Tate is discouraging men from getting married. He's basically arguing oftentimes marriage ends in divorce, and it's just not a good investment for men. And by contrast, we see a lot of voices on the left are telling women that they should not be investing in marriage, that they should be investing in their careers, in success, their own personal brands, and steering clear of the kind of encumbrances and the burdens that, you know, tend to flow from marriage, and especially motherhood, um, you know, that, that hit women. So that's kind of, you know, the message we're getting from the left oftentimes in places like the New York Times and Bloomberg you know, have articulated messages um, like this piece in the the Atlantic, you know, made the case against marriage, um, targeting especially women more. So this is kind of what we're getting today. And I think this part and parcel of why it is that young adults are steering clear of marriage in greater numbers than was the case, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, uh, his message, Tate's message seems to be resonating. And is that because it's a pretty easy sell when everything online and, and much of society is telling you, your job is to maximize your own pleasure. So that's partly, I think, the appeal of Andrew Tate. But I think also we've done a disservice to a lot of our teenage men and young men. I think our schools tend to kind of teach in ways that don't really <clears throat> speak as much to young men. We've seen, you know, wide gender gaps emerging across the developed world between boys and girls. 
where girls are outperforming boys. At least in the States, we're seeing a lot of young women outperforming young men in the labor market. So I think there's a way in which this sort of gender gap that's been emerging in schools and the workforce has made a lot of men uh, vulnerable and, and angry and kind of susceptible to this sort of more misogynistic message that Andrew Tate offers. But I also would say, too, we haven't done a very good job of kind of giving young men a clear and compelling vision of masculinity that would motivate them to engage both at school and in work, life and love. So I think that's also why Andrew Tate's, you know, message, it, it is very kind of clear about what he thinks men should be up to. And unfortunately, oftentimes, you know, parents and schools and pop culture today don't give men a kind of clear and compelling and pro-social model of what it means to be a man today in 2024. Yeah, we had a chat about this with an author called Richard Reeves uh, last year. And in case people are listening to this and thinking, well, hey, poor old men, women don't have it very uh, very good either in society. Well, Richard made the point that you're allowed to care about both. You can uh, care about the um, violence against women, the ongoing kind of sexism, misogyny of society, and you can uh, also care about lifting our boys to be everything they can be. What does the science say about who's better off, married people or singles? So the science is pretty clear. I mean, there, there's a lot of um, you know sentiment out there that thinks that both uh, men, but especially women, are are kind of less well off when they get married and have kids. You know, there's no doubt. I mean, we all know. I'm, I'm a parent. We know that there are a lot of sacrifices entailed with being a part of a family. Um, you know, lost sleep, um, helping kids with school, selling teenagers. I mean, I could just you know give you many kind of items that underline kind of the difficulties of being a parent often, especially that are falling, especially on women. But when you look at kind of sort of trends in in loneliness, trends in meaning, trends in happiness, what you find is that married men, married women are more likely to be flourishing, especially married dads and married moms. So in the United States, for instance, what we find is that married moms are about twice as likely to be very happy with their lives compared to their unmarried peers. So, um, you know, even though marriage and motherhood, marriage and fatherhood are often getting kind of a negative rap today in certain precincts in the culture, there's no question that when it comes to kind of reports of loneliness, meaning, and happiness, both uh, women and men who are married, especially married moms and dads, are more likely to be reporting that they're happy with their lives. A big proportion of our listeners will be in same-sex relationships. Um, Have you looked at those at all, or is your book primarily about heterosexual relationships? Yeah, I haven't looked at that in detail. I mean, I think that sort of a lot of the benefits that kind of follow from marriage are likely to be also applicable to same-sex couples. But I've really focused on uh, married couples who have kids as one of my kind of core um, objects of, of study. And at least in the United States, what we're seeing is that less than 1% of married couples with kids are same sex. And so with my samples, I wouldn't have you know a large enough sample of same sex couples uh, to look at. So I focused in this book on heterosexual married couples, yeah. many of whom have, have kids in the household. It doesn't mean it wouldn't be an interesting area of research for the future. Um, I, I chuckled when I read your book subtitle, Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites. Um, why did you use that word, the elites, in your book title? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I first released the book on Twitter, there were a lot of elite journalists who were kind of, you know, raising questions, kind of sneering at the title to some extent. And the irony is that one of the the critics of the title 
um, was himself actually mentioned in the book. So the point I'm making is not that our elites are kind of you know, doing badly because they're not. We, what, what we see in my book is that college-educated Americans, for instance, one way of thinking about elites, are more likely today to be getting married and to be staying married. So they're actually, you know, kind of embracing the institution often implicitly. But when it comes to kind of their public pronouncements, what we often see is that our elites are not kind of friendly to marriage. And in fact, the journalists I'm thinking of have written a piece in an online outlet called um, Vox that was arguing that the decline of marriage is not a problem. So, you know, he was actually an example of this very issue that I'm talking about. But we also see, too, kind of plenty of more recent advice from journalists in places like the New York Times and um, the Wall Street Journal and other outlets making the case, for instance, for polyamory. And I mean, I've been married 28 years now, Jesse. And I mean, just from a simply a practical perspective, the idea of like trying to add a new uh, partner to the mix, you know, I mean, just the sort of practical difficulties of that, the financial difficulties of that. I mean, I don't feel like I'm giving my wife, you know, enough attention and affection, <laughs> you know, and support, you know, just you know, with with one partner, I think to add another partner would be would be super hard. But and, and more importantly, in terms of just the day, what we see is that couples who embrace kind of this classic norm of fidelity are more likely to be very happy with um, with their marriages than couples who are kind of opening up their perspective on this issue of fidelity to this newer uh, norm. So that's kind of just one example of the way in which our elites are often likely to sort of what I would say talk left, but walk right. Um, that Vox journalist is sort of one example of that, um, or to be kind of articulating support for ideas related to things like sexual fidelity that I think are not particularly helpful for today's married couples. Yeah, I'm talking to Professor Brad Wilcox. The other part of the subtitle is about marriage saving civilization. Is that slightly hyperbolic, intentionally hyperbolic? I mean, certainly a little bit, but I think what's interesting is that when you look at a lot of the key outcomes, I'm here in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is the... Uh, the home, uh, obviously, many, many years ago of Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, one of our early presidents, he wrote the Declaration of Independence, you know, which is pretty important for us Americans. And in the Declaration talked about the importance of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And when it comes to life, what we've been seeing, at least in the States, is a tremendous surge, what are called deaths of despair, deaths related to suicide, alcohol, and drugs especially. We've also been seeing in the States, you know, many parts of our country where the American dream kind of rising from poverty as a child to riches as an adult is out of reach for millions of American kids, in particular regions especially. And then finally, we've been seeing happiness in America drop really since 2000. And new research from Harvard, from Gallup, and from... Um, sorry, and from uh, Chicago uh, tells us that oftentimes the top factor in these three trends is either family structure or marriage. So when it comes to the pursuit of happiness, for instance, what we see in new data is that the number one factor that accounts for this dropping level of happiness in America is the fact that fewer and fewer Americans are putting a ring on it. So this is kind of just one example of the way in which I think what happens in our homes and in our love lives doesn't just affect us and maybe our kids, but it affects the larger you know, communities that we live in and the broader civilizational fabric. 
The stuff you're talking about, does this have to be marriage, which I think probably has its origins in the um, in the in the church or the in, in religion? Some people might say, hey, well, um, I live with my partner in a committed relationship. We've got kids. We're not going anywhere. Surely that's good enough. Well, it's interesting. You know, I think actually marriage is not a Christian thing, right? So if you think about China, if you think about India, if you think about Egypt, you know, Nigeria, I mean, there are many, many, obviously, civilizations. Mm. I mean, and they understand marriage, obviously, in different ways. But the point I'm getting at is I think most civilizations across the world have turned to, you know, marriage as a way of organizing the relationship between two adults and often their kids and their kin, um, you know, lending a certain degree of meaning and direction to this, you know, core relationship. So yes, there are covenant couples who can who can thrive without without a ring or without legal marriage. But I think the kind of public vows that people tend to make either in a religious or in a secular ceremony before friends and family are pretty consequential. I'm a sociologist and we actually take collective rituals pretty seriously. Um, they're pretty meaningful. They're pretty uh, valuable often for us. Um, and it's just a way of, too, kind of signaling to your partner that you're committed, um, oftentimes in a u- unique and powerful way. So we do see that on average, in many different national contexts, that marriage is more stable and more committed um, for couples compared to cohabitation. I wonder if the benefits of marriage are quite hard to sell in 2024. You observe, your words, it's very difficult to portray meaning and life satisfaction through a cool Instagram post. What looks good on social media? Um, Cocktails and bikini models and partying and fast cars and all that individualistic stuff. Yeah, that's that's an incredibly, I think, relevant point. There's been some really interesting psychological research done in Southeast Asia, basically talking about how um, economic inequality, urbanization, and social media are like a toxic um, combo that have basically made both marriage and childbearing much less common throughout much of Asia. So and I'm sure these dynamics are applicable both to New Zealand and the United States as well. So yeah, it's just hard, I think, for kind of, um, you know, marriage and parenthood, you know, because they require a lot of sacrifices and a lot of compromises, to compete with, you know, um, the kind of life that's often portrayed on Instagram or on TikTok. But I can tell you that, you know, from, again, from an empirical perspective, there's, you know, nothing that really compares to a good marriage when it comes to happiness. What we find in the United States is that women and men who are in good marriages are 545% more likely to be happy with their lives, very happy with their lives compared to their peers who are not married and or their peers who are in not good marriages. And a good marriage is far more predictive of sort of global happiness than, you know, education, money, a good job, sexual frequency, good health, you know, basically any variable that we can throw in the models. So, you know, my point is that uh, we're hardwired to connect. And if we can do a good job of connecting with someone else, particularly in marriage, we're just much more likely to be flourishing. Um, Jean Twenge, amazing how much her name comes up in our interviews. She's probably the world's leading expert on teenagers right now. And her her research shows they are dating less. They're too busy on social media. You refer to this as the closing of the American heart. What do you mean by that? So what we're seeing is that dating is down based on Gene Twenge's work. What we're seeing um, in my book is that the marriage rates fallen 60 
5% about in the U.S. since 1970. Uh, fertility has fallen from replacement levels in just 2009 to about 1.6 in the U.S. Uh, today. So there are just a number of indicators where we're just sort of seeing, you know, less, um, you know, less love being uh, formed and made and fewer kids being had. And, you know, I think this is a great tragedy because, again, for most of us, there's nothing kind of more important than um, a spouse and children and then maybe eventually grandchildren. And um, because of the larger cultural and economic currents we've been touching on today, because of these um, distracting devices, you know, that tend to capture our imagination, we're just not investing in real person uh, relationships as much. And um, that's, I think, going to make a lot of Young adults today end up being um, rather sad and, and forlorn and financially vulnerable as they head to, to midlife. And anyway, one more point on that: my colleague Lyman Stone just released a, a new report, at least for family studies, um, projecting that about one in three young adults today will probably never marry in the United States. And this is record demographic kind of territory that's being forged, and uh, not very good kind of territory in my in my assessment. Yeah. Um, should take a moment to acknowledge people who, who don't have as many choices around things. You know, we're talking about, um, you know, some people aren't able to have children, and so they have very happy marriages and never have children. Some people decide not to have children for whatever reason. Um, but for people who do have children and who have the opportunity to raise them with a partner, a big part of your book is about the benefits of that for children being raised in a two-parent home. Yeah, so I was raised by a single mom. And, you know, Jesse, I think my mom did a good job. My sister and I are, were flourishing. We're, you know, middle-aged, married, bunch of kids in both, you know, both families. Um, so I'm not saying that, you know, coming from some kind of non-intact family is obviously a death sentence. There are plenty of folks who flourish in a variety of different family contexts. We know in the U.S., you know, people like Barack Obama and Jeff Bezos, you know, were raised in non-intact families and obviously, you know, had a lot of professional success here in, in America. But we also know, you know, from the social science that kids are more likely to flourish when they have the benefit of their own uh, intact married family behind them. We know that, for instance, young men are about twice as likely to graduate from college if they have an intact family, you know, in their corner. And they're about half as likely to end up in prison or in jail um, if, you know, if they're raised by their own <clears throat> married parents. Um, you know, we know that teenage girls are about 50% more likely to be depressed if they're raised outside an intact family compared to teenage girls who are raised by their own um, married parents. So on a number of key outcomes, what we see is that you know, kids tend to flourish when they have a stable married parent family. And a lot of, you know, progressive scholars and journalists would kind of think, well, what really matters for our kids is love and money. But the particular family structure, family form isn't so important for our kids. And I wouldn't in any way kind of minimize the importance of love and money for kids. When you kind of measure attention, affection, consistent discipline, and financial resources, you always find that those, you know, four ingredients are associated on average with better outcomes for kids. But what I think some people don't realize, don't recognize is that on average, and of course there are exceptions, but on average, stable married parents are better able to give kids 
more attention, more affection, more consistent discipline. They're not shuttling between two, two houses, for instance, and a lot more money. So, you know, the point here is that, you know, when you have kids, um, and obviously, you know, if there's domestic violence, for instance, you know, I'm not suggesting people stay together in that situation. But when you have kids, the point here is that, um, you know, generally speaking, your kids are going to be more likely to flourish. You can kind of configure out and forge a path that is, um, you know, basically stable for you know, your partner and for your children. Yeah, you just alluded to this, but um, you acknowledge in the book that there's a fair bit of research that high conflict marriages are bad for children. So you're not advocating staying in a bad marriage for the sake of the kids. What needs to happen from here, Brad? What needs to happen in order for more people to want to get married and, and stay married? So on the policy front, uh, in the United States, at least, we often penalize marriage in terms of how we've organized our public policy. So one thing that I've been seeking here in the United States is an end to what are called marriage penalties, which basically means that a lot of working class and poor couples in the U.S. kind of when they kind of basically figure out their financial situation, they realize that if they were to marry legally, they would lose access to benefits related to things like health care and child care. So not sure if that's relevant to New Zealand, but that would be certainly one of the things that needs to be addressed. I think also kind of um, pushing forward a more generous child tax credit that would benefit families kind of across the board, especially working in middle-class families, help them kind of handle the costs of raising kids. And that's viable because um, we know that stress can be a real relationship killer. And so if you have more financial resources, that can be helpful too for the kind of the, the quality and the stability of your relationship. But I think beyond these kinds of family policies, we need to also kind of just do a better job of educating our kids and our schools, and then also through PSAs and now social media campaigns about the benefits of marriage and family life. And just kind of underlying this point that there's sort of a longer term benefit that comes from being in a family and from being in a context where you can kind of live for someone besides yourself, where you kind of can care for someone besides yourself, um, where there's also someone though in your corner too, if you're going through, you know, um, some kind of big medical problem, loss of a job, you know, loss of a loved one, um, just to kind of remind people of these sort of elementary facts um, about social life, about family, that I think a lot of our young adults are not really sort of you know, bearing in mind and to encourage them to use their 20s if they do think that they would like to get married um, to find a spouse. And, you know, at least in the United States, a lot of young adults are kind of thinking about postponing marriage until their late 20s or early 30s, not recognizing, not realizing that a record share of them are never going to marry, given some of these challenges now facing young adults more generally. And so given that, I would encourage young adults in colleges or technical schools or kind of early on in their careers in their early 20s to be a lot more intentional, a lot more deliberate about meeting people and engaging in activities, including office parties and voluntary activities that maximize their chances of meeting someone who'd be a good partner um, and then a good spouse down the road. Uh, there's plenty more in the book. It's called Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families and Save Civilization. And I've been talking to the author, Professor Brad Wilcox from the University of Virginia. Heaps to think about there, Brad. And thanks so much for your time today. Great to be with you today, Jesse. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. 
Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.